health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rodersheimer, your host. In today's financial episode, we're going to focus on healthcare in America as well as life insurance. Both areas have a lot of complexity and unfamiliarity for the average American. My guest is Eric Geyer. He's the president of PureSurance, who offers some alternative ways to look at both healthcare and coverage, as well as health insurance policies, in particular, making sure that you have a policy that's right for the coverage you need, as well as potentially as an investment tool. Eric, thanks so much for joining me today. Do you want to kick us off by talking about your background and give us a little bit more information about PureSurance? Sure. So my background personally is in institutional equity sales. So for over two decades, I worked on Wall Street, uh, both in New York and Hong Kong, um, servicing some of the largest uh, asset managers um, and uh, a lot of w- and pension funds, a lot of which were managing the very funds um, where I'm talking about now. Um, so now, uh, my wife and I moved down to Florida and, um, I wanted to add some value on a much more, um, personal level. And I asked myself initially, what is the one area that is so incredibly inefficient where people need help? And that led me to health insurance, um, specifically to the small business owner, entrepreneur, freelancer community, because unless they have a spouse who's on some group plan that they can just get on, they're really forced to buy off the exchange or, you know, um, a health share plan if they go that route, which is not really insurance. And we can talk about that. Um, but also there are, um, other private insurance plans that are medically underwritten um, that do provide a great value and uh, just as good coverage uh, that a lot of people don't know about. So um, that's that was basically um, my uh, my I guess baptism by fire. Uh, and when I started talking to small business owners, it just became obvious how prevalent uh, this problem is. So. Um, that of course led me to life insurance, um, the retirement aspect of life insurance, um, as my clients started asking me about that specific, uh, area and so many people, not just my clients, but so many people, uh, in the country are ill-prepared for the retirement that is about to hit. And, um, those traditional means of, of vehicles such as 401k in this environment really, I don't believe we're going to cut it anymore. Jumping off of your experience from the health insurance lay of the land, I remember when the ACA was first being rolled out. And to your point about relying on the employer for your coverage or you've got the exchanges to deal with, I was hoping at the time that – it would be a viable alternative, especially for people that are maybe not quite 65 yet and they need a everything else is in place for them to retire except for Medicare. Of course, when those prices came out, and I think I heard you say that when you really look at it, it's not really insurance. I'm assuming what you mean translating by that is the deductibles on a lot of these plans are very, very high. Of course, the premiums are also not super affordable. So as far as what you're getting is probably 
not really going to help other than a major, major catastrophic issue. So I don't think it bridged the gap, at least that I was hoping that it would. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's kind of a, a similar analysis that you initially saw with the exchanges. And again, I'm totally with you as well, that this connection between an employer group for everybody else uh, and your health insurance is very strange, especially when you talk about people that are doing consulting or working for themselves, or as you mentioned, the small businesses who don't have the same capital to provide that kind of a benefit directly to their employer. So what other differences in the traditional health insurance model that people tend to be used to are there compared to what you're offering? So as you know, um, there is, the traditional model is premium, deductible, coinsurance, max out-of-pocket, and then everything above that. The problem is, even if you're subsidy eligible on the health exchange, and that is as a single person making you know, be- between twelve five dollars and $50,000, um, you're going to get a great break on premium, but you're still going to be subject to what's likely to be a very high deductible. And, you know, those people who, who can barely afford, you know, their, their rent are basically functionally uninsured is the, is the um, industry term for it. And that means that they're not getting any value out of their health insurance program, their health insurance plan, because they're never meeting their deductible. So that's, that's a huge problem for that, right? So you, you swallow it because it does provide catastrophic protection, but it's not the optimal scenario. Um, there are other, um, there are other, uh, other vehicles out there that do make sense, um, that are medically underwritten, uh, which means that you do have to qualify medically for them. So, you know, if you have a history of heart disease, recent, uh, cancer, um, or you know, insulin-dependent diabetes, among other stuff, chances are you're not eligible for them. But barring a serious health event, um, you know these these plans are at a fraction of the cost of a major medical policy. Um, there's usually no deductible whatsoever on anything outpatient, including uh, surgery in an ambulatory center. In fact, the only time you ever see a deductible is if you're admitted overnight into the hospital, and the uh, likelihood of that happening is incredibly small. And as far as being medically underwritten, to be clear, what people need to kind of connect here is what they're doing with their employers or like the exchanges. Uh, they don't have that part. Uh, it's pretty much anybody that can can get in uh, or wants the insurance can sign up for it. Whereas medically underwritten, probably people are more used to that in the life insurance arena, I would guess, because it's more of a standard understood gate, maybe if that's the right term. Uh, So what you're saying is for people that get through that gate on a health insurance type policy, and especially if it's a group of folks that are on the healthier side, just like life insurance, you will have lower premiums for the expectation that's concerned. What are some of the chronic conditions that may disqualify somebody from a plan? And then I guess on the other end, what should people be doing to make sure they do qualify for such a plan? Yeah. So being proactive with your health is a great way to do it. Um, you know, keeping yourself in shape, eating well, uh, that those are, those are huge. But as you can imagine, the, the really, um, insidious, uh, diseases, um, you know, in addition to the three I mentioned earlier, uh, stuff like, um, MS, 
um, you know, uh, ALS, God forbid, um, all of those really um, horrible diseases are uh, are pretty much deal breakers. But, you know, uh, you, if you've had cancer in your past and you've been free for five years, um, you qualify. So, you know, it, it's not an all or none thing. People get better and um, maybe you, you weren't able to qualify a few years ago, but now you can. So, you know, it's just, it, it's a, um, it, it's an avenue that's worth exploring uh, if you are in a position where you want to see immediate value from your insurance, right? You don't want to pay a deductible and you'd be saving a lot of money and you're not tied down to any specific network. So, you know, that's another thing. If where I'm, where I am in Florida right now, there's a lot of Florida blue plans that are great in the state, but let's say you go skiing and, you know, you break your leg and you're at a network, you know, and if, unless you're, it's an emergency and you go into a hospital, they may not pay that at all. Which is ironic in and of itself, right? Like anybody that dips their toe into the insurance arena knows, of course, that the emergency visits are the real breaking of the bank because of how expensive they are. Yet, right, if you're out of network and God forbid something happens, not with every single plan necessarily, but a lot of times the only way you have any prayer of it being covered is if it was deemed a true emergency that you go to the ED for and then it ultimately gets paid. So that is kind of a wild thing of talk about reverse incentives as far as what the total cost is going to be and what you're encouraging people to ultimately do to get something taken care of. What else does the network look like from your perspective? Uh, Maybe even to frame where I'm coming from, people, I feel like people talk negatively about the HMO or the network of you only have in network. That never bothered me really. I, I mean, you have to pick a cell phone coverage, right? Or you have to pick other types of services and that's who you have. So, I guess just for me, I've never gone to a certain doctor that I just absolutely had to have for the rest of my life. So that's just me and where I'm coming from. I know people are a little bit different. You mentioned some of those out-of-network benefits. What does that look like? For one of these private plans, and, and let me just kind of state that um, the the network means more to a woman than it does um, a man because you know we, we basically just go for our annuals. Women's women go for mammos and all kinds of stuff like that. So there, there's a more um, precise need there, as well as for the kids, right? You, you want to be able to go to a pediatrician who you want to go to, who your friends might go to, not necessarily what's offered in the HMO. Um, what I mean by out of network. So <clears throat> in a traditional major medical plan. Um, you may have to meet a deductible that's double the cost of your in-network deductible first, which is crazy. In private plans outside of the major medical arena, there's no disadvantage from going out of network um, because the plan itself is a defined benefit plan. Um, you're going to get the same benefit whether you stay in-network or out-of-network. The only difference is in network, you can just basically show your card like like a traditional plan and, and the doctor files it on your behalf. If you go out of network, you would basically go into an, a provider's office, ask for the self-pay or cash price, pay it, and then submit it for a full benefit reimbursement. So um, that's 
The flexibility that these types of plans offer uh, is great for anybody who's willing to take a more proactive approach um, to their uh, health coverage. And it really does bring back the provider-patient relationship that the Blue Crosses of the world, um, you know, tend to have brought down through, you know, let's call it an assembly line um, rule of of how they provide insurance. And you're speaking my language as far as the cost, basically presenting yourself as a non-covered individual to get rid of some of the lack of transparency, if that's the right way to say it. Now, of course, recognizing, I know some people just absolutely hate negotiating for a car, right? They wish it was here's a price for the thing that I'm getting. It's the same price for every single person. Well, gosh, just Google different tips to try to get the best price on a car and people's theories about whether or not you're going to have a loan, right? Versus if you're going to be paying cash, whether or not you're going to get a better rate and so on. So I feel like it's a similar kind of model there. Like I said, you're speaking my language that I have no problem having those kind of conversations with a healthcare provider or again, somebody trying to sell me a car, whatever it happens to be. I know there are people that are of the mindset that they just want to go to their doctor and get their care and feel kind of icky if they're having those kinds of how much does it cost conversation. But it definitely does put the power back and gets rid of that third party. I agree with you. Yeah. One thing that really makes me nervous that I have to um, voice today is that uh, you had a um, you had a guest on and I agreed with 95% of what he said and he was talking about health insurance. The one area I did not agree with him were these faith-based health share. Um, uh, they're not uh, they're not policies. They're, you know, they, they've popped up all over the place and it isn't insurance. And, you know, I, I actually consult a lot of people who come off of these policies because they found themselves in situations where they thought it was going to be great because when they were young and it paid for the pregnancies, which are, you know, very expensive at times. And they, they're great about that. But in other situations that come up, it's it's really at their discretion whether they're going to pay the claim or not or how much of the claim or not. There's no guarantee around it. And it really defeats the purpose of, of paying a, 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 a premium. Of course, they can't call it premium, but um, paying a premium because it's all based on the transfer of risk. You're not transferring any risk if there's no certainty of benefit. So, you know, I would just encourage people to, if they're looking at a health share or they're in a health share, to look at private options outside of the health share because most of the time, the um, monthly outlay is going to be very, very similar, but you're going to get real insurance and you don't have to worry about, you know, whether or not um, it's going to be paid if a serious issue happens, which is the reason why we're all insured anyway, right? I'm glad you acknowledged that because actually that was going to be one of my questions from the prior episode of the policy you're talking about. How does that compare to right? The faith-based. And as you can probably tell with what my perspective is, I've just been looking for general alternatives to what the gotchas seem to be with the exchange or being tied to the employer plan. And that was one of the first ones that I remember years ago being aware of as a potential alternative. I, I think I first became aware of it really as a way to 
well, frankly, get around the individual mandate because <laughs> because that it was actually a little bit intriguing to me that these plans seem to be in other or outside of the regular offerings. Yet apparently, it did qualify to to basically put you in line with that individual mandate. So, uh, yeah, there there are definitely some restrictions, at least. Uh, that I'm still unaware of. So that's a good call out. And also let me pick up on what you mentioned as far as the types of services. And you mentioned uh, a delivery. Uh, Here's a different angle on that. And I'm curious how you feel about this of the overall transparency. I remember seeing some sort of a documentary years ago and it talks about the real cost to a hospital for a delivery. It's actually higher than what they are getting paid as compared to, let's say, like a CAT scan or something like that, that actually doesn't cost them much of anything. But oh boy, if you get a bill for one of those, <laughs> watch out in most cases, especially if you have the deductible. And of course, the dig on that is they're basically doing their pricing based on our social idea of what something should cost rather than the actual cost of it. How do you view those kind of anomalies and do they play a role in how your plan is set up? So a good pl- a good private plan outside of the scope of these major medical plans will look at the real cost of, of services done. Let's just talk about uh, um, a, an ultrasound, an imaging, something that some, a lot of people get. Um, you could have a a doctor's group that you go to who sees you and, and you're, you're, you know, complaining of abdominal pain and yeah, just go down the hall and we'll get you an ultrasound. Don't worry about it. You know, well, a week later you find a bill for 1500 for that ultrasound when you could actually go to an independent place two blocks away that might have that same ultrasound for $110. And that was actually a real live scenario for one of my clients when he called me up and, and he says, he's like, Eric, he goes, they want me to take this ultrasound. It's going to be 1500 here. You know, the, the, the health insurance benefit is not that much. It's, you know, there are ways to bring down that cost and independent imaging places are the best way to do it. MRIs don't cost $2,400, but it's a great way, as you mentioned, to recoup costs on other things by charging that. But a real MRI shouldn't cost more than $700. And, you know, a independent imaging places, um, will, uh, um, will charge that. And you know what? I want to give a shout out to a company called green imaging. Um, and they, they, um, will help you book, um, any kind of imaging at centers all across the country for a fraction of the cost of what a, uh, a doctor's group might charge for. I love that. Even you mentioning that you're individually helping a client of yours, be educated, uh, as well as certainly companies that are able to do that. That to me is huge. And I don't know if I, well, I didn't mention in this episode, but <laughs> if you would have caught in other episodes, actually my day job is in the managed care space. So uh, I, I joke, actually I've told the story on the show before about my daughter breaking her arm. And luckily my wife, who is a physician and me being in the space knew some of the steps to take to, for example, not go to the emergency room and figure out like what kind of an ortho uh, we could find for urgent care to keep that cost down. One other story I will share around like imaging. Gosh, I forget how many years ago this was. I wasn't quite as wise as I am now. Ha ha. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Neither of us, none of us <laughs> uh, so 
I called the insurance carrier about the imaging that I was going to have done. And separate from the things that you're talking about as far as the different prices per provider, this was the same provider who, oh, by the way, was asking me to prepay even though I was insured because they knew I had a deductible, which of course is a little bit of a different topic here. So I wanted to know what that total cost was going to look like. I got three wildly different quotes from the uh, customer service people from the insurer. I want to say it was, right, it was as low as actually about $700 up to like $3,000. They had no idea. Even when I'm trying to be proactive, it's like, well, you're going to roll the dice because that's the industry we're in (laughs) and you'll know when you get the bill, which is of course just outrageous for any other industry. It's outrageous. And, you know, there have sites that have that have popped up like MD Save, where you can type in what zip code you're in and what procedure you're looking at, and it'll give you an indication of the real price of these things. So um, it, you, it, all you need to do is be willing to dig a little bit. And when I, when I give my web address uh, later, um, I, I do provide a resources page on there that you can just take a look at. And there's great resources on how to save money if, you know, uh, if your listeners are uninsured or underinsured. Um, it'll really help them out a lot. Um, like I said, I'm definitely all about any of those kinds of tips. Uh, we haven't really talked about pharmacy, but for example, GoodRx, right, is 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 probably the most well known uh, way that even if you are insured, I'll say for me, like there's hopefully no way I'm ever going to hit my pharmacy deductible in a given year. So it does not make sense for me to even show them my insurance card. Uh, again, typically GoodRx is. Uh, got some really good deals. And depending on the carrier itself, uh, actually, again, I'll share it. I was put on a very common um, daily prescription that's free at one of our local grocery stores. So yet another instance where it quite literally pays to shop around a little bit. And and hopefully people are starting to get more in that mindset. Like I said, yeah, I get how you wish it wasn't the case that you have to be an informed consumer for your own health, but it is the case. (laughs) And it is something you just need to be educated on. Yeah. And uh, I I kind of liken this to um, to trading. Uh, You know, there there used to be market makers who would make a, a pretty wide spread in a stock, right? And you would you would buy at the and, and you would sell on the bid. But then electronic brokers came in and started cutting that spread, you know, lower and lower and lower, making it more narrow. And that's what GoodRx has done. Um, there's other firms out there like Drexy who do a cost plus model where they take the actual cost of the medication and then they just add a small surcharge for the user and that's your price. So sometimes Drexy is even better than GoodRx because they're not, they're not taking any spread whatsoever on the, on the cost of the medication versus what the pharmacy charges. Good, good tip, and uh, another interesting way of, of again, how the money changes hands. Why, why it's ended up this way? I guess we're not going to all the money. <laughs> yeah, that's right, and <laughs> we won't be able to unravel all of it here or ever. <laughs> but as long as you can figure out how some of those things work and some of the levers that you can pull, uh, all, all the better to be able to do that. Well, before we move over to the life insurance piece, is there any other major uh, characteristics of the policy we're talking about here that people should be aware of that is different from what they might be used to? Sure. So uh, the one thing that you that, that works really well with this policy is an ER visit, believe it or not. So 
anytime you go into ER, you always go in and self pay because if you go, if they know you have insurance, they're going to mark it up as much as 1100%. And I had a client, um, who was, who was having chest pains and her doctor told her to go to the ER. She calls me up and this is, this is in Houston. Um, she calls me up and she's like, my doctor's telling me to go to the ER. I know it's expensive. I don't know if the benefits that we have cover it. So I said, well, if you have chest pains, go to the ER. So she goes to the ER. Um, she, she, they did a bunch of tests. $3,700 later, um, she was on checking out and they were asking her insurance. And she said, you know, I self pay. And, they, you know, they, and they came back and they said immediately, they said, well, can you afford you know, $1,700. And she's like, no, not really. Um, and they said, how about $655? She's like, done. So she puts her credit card in there, pays the $655. Um, the ER benefit um, from this particular policy was $800. So she made $145 on that ER visit. Those are things you can do that nobody knows about doing, but they're simple strategies that will make you um, not only not owe a lot, but in a, in a lot of times profitable on these things. Now, profitability isn't a goal when you're going to the doctor, but um, it, it happens more often than you think. I both love that and hate that, right? <laughs> I, I, I love the story because it is somebody flipping the script on the system that we have right now. Of course, I hate it because that is crazy of what the original price that was quoted down to, oh, now all of a sudden they think based on somebody else that's saying they're not insured, they may get nothing from it. So they're willing to take much, much less after the fact. Let's go ahead and move over to the universal life. Now, this is definitely an area that I don't have as much background in and Speaking for me personally, I've so far come from the school of term insurance. It's supposed to be the insurance benefit as a death benefit. Don't intermingle your life insurance with what you want your investments to be. Recently, I've expanded my knowledge at least a little bit more. And where I sit today is I almost think of universal life or whole life as more of an investment than even any kind of insurance. So it's almost like they should change the name of it. Uh, so from that standpoint, tell me a little bit about whole life, which I think has been around longer compared to universal life, which my take is it's a little bit newer of a product. Right. So you buy whole life for one of two reasons. Um, you- Basically, right for the death benefit, right for you're mitigating estate taxes, or let's say you have a an adult child that's going to live past you who has developmental disabilities, and you want to provide for it. It's 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 a great um, tool for that. The problem with whole life is that there's fixed premiums, um, and you if you miss a premium you have to surrender the policy, right? You have to pay that policy every month at that price because it's 
giving you a guaranteed cash value um, or until you die or you're or you have to surrender it and, and take its cash value. Um, that's the biggest drawback from it. With a universal life policy, um, you're focusing less on the death benefit and more on cash value accumulation. So the policy is much more affordable. And with the way that we construct them, for example, um, we pad them enough where you would be able to miss, um, let's say, uh, you know, several payments if you ran on bad luck, and and it wouldn't it wouldn't render the policy um, uh, void. So you know, we, we we create that padding for you, so you don't run into trouble if you have problems paying the premiums, um, you know, for several months, and it's it's. It's a great investment from a perspective of managing volatility. Um, because these, these universal life policies track an index, the index universal life policies, and they don't, uh, di- but they don't directly invest in them, they, you appreciate the upside gain, which are protected from the downside losses. So everyone knows that you know, if 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 an investment falls twenty percent in a year, you have to make twenty five percent the next year just to get back to zero. You're stopped out on these policies at zero, so your money is going to grow a lot quicker because you don't have to make up that negative territory. And you know, if you analyze an investment for the last twenty years, um, you know, uh, you're probably it probably returned the S and P returned about five point nine percent before expenses over the last twenty years. Um, you know, we're in the same kind of ballpark, a little bit better, six to seven percent. Um, and you know, you don't have to worry about these excessive management fees that come with you know other investments like mutual funds and sometimes uh, equity investments. I'm glad you called out the premium because that is definitely again in my current understanding of whole life at least anyway my major concern i.e just what you said if somebody falls on hard times and they can't meet that premium well they're going to lose the policy and so i don't care what kind of return they're getting on those it's gone and and that is not the case of course with investing in a 401k or whatever else you're doing with your equities. Yes, to your point, you could lose value when the market goes down, but you can stop being required to put in more money. So that is a very important distinction, I think, between the whole and the universal life. You mentioned the index tracking. Is that a specific index relative to universal life that it tracks? Or are we talking about tracking like S&P 500 as an index? The S&P 500 is the most common that it tracks. Uh, and uh, what it does is it, it, it returns up to a, a cap rate. So you're not going to get the full benefit of the, of the um, index when it goes up, but you're going to be protected from the downside. So, you know, it's, it's really there to manage volatility. Um, and, and to protect your money from these huge, um, let's, let's call them gyrations in the stock market, right? Because let's say, you know, you're retiring in the next five years, you have a half a million dollars built up in a 401k, you know, your two greatest risks are, um, 
the market falling right before you retire or right after you retire. Because not only do you have to make more to get back to zero, you're taking return, you're taking income from that money at the lower level. So it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty dangerous um, perspective if you have all of your money tied up in, in a vehicle like the 401k. And it, look, it, the 401k has its place. Um, if you have an employer match, for example, you should absolutely contribute up to the employer match because you're getting free money. But above that, there are better uh, investments uh, to make uh, aside from the 401k. Are there certain limits on the universal life both ways? Are, is there a limit as far as if you make a certain amount of money, let's say the tax advantages are not quite as rich as they otherwise would be, and then vice versa? I guess from your personal perspective, uh, should somebody be at – should their budget be in such a way – you mentioned, like, for example, 401k, if you have the match, at least get that in there. Or any other budget considerations before they would look to open this kind of policy? You want to be able to build a cash value in an IUL, and for that, you want to you want to have at least at least three hundred dollars a month to be able to, um, at a minimum, to be able to uh, um, open up one of these policies. Typically, they're for people who make at least fifty thousand dollars, but realistically, more towards seventy to eighty thousand, because in in truth, you should have a diversified portfolio between. Um, tax-free, tax-deferred, and taxable investments. So in the 70 to 80 range, it's a bit more comfortable and it doesn't put such a, um, you know, a, uh, a, let's, let's call it a strain on your, uh, on your income. But for those who already have investments built up, uh, oftentimes what I'll do is create an elaborate report that just kind of tweaks a few things, a reallocation that can make a huge difference. Um, you know, to somebody's retirement plan, it could it could um, uh, be the difference between a su- successful and retirement uh, failure. And and think and, and think about it. Like the average person is going to be retired for twenty years, right? If you're a couple, you have a fifty percent chance of living to age ninety, and a five percent chance of living to age a hundred. So you can't just prepare to 85 anymore. You have to prepare to age 100 because the worst possible thing is uh, longevity risk, right? You never want to outlive your money. And also sticking with the tax advantages, can you tell me what are the tax advantages of the account and then are what's the limits of those? So um, you, can, you can pretty much put in what you want. Um, there's a tax-free death benefit. It's tax-deferred cash value accumulation, and you can take tax-free loans and withdrawals on it. So it's it, it, it's it's a great product. Um, it forces you to pay your taxes now instead of in the future, like a 401k. So you really have to ask yourself, where do I think tax rates are going? Right. So we're at 37% now. We're staring at a a $30 trillion deficit with this last stimulus package that, that, you know, the checks that went out. And there's a $3 trillion proposal for infrastructure on the, on the table. So we just can't continue to print money. Um, so the logical place to go after this is retirement accounts and, you know, if you think the future tax rates are going to be higher than they are now, which, you know, pretty much everyone in the know does, um, 
it, it might be better for you to think about uh, paying taxes now and being in investments where you know you can let that money grow uh, tax free and take it out tax free. Roth IRAs, for example, are, are, are great if you if, if you can contribute to those. I feel like the newly emerging running joke I have is. I want to say every single financially savvy person <laughs> that I've had on the show, when I ask for future predictions or anything like that, it is pretty much categorically not a matter of if, when taxes will be higher. And of course, like you mentioned, for, for Roth or um, being able to, to have something tax deferred currently, uh, it, used to be, okay, do you think you're going to be making less money in retirement uh, compared to in your working years? Now it seems like, well, even if you are, the chances of the bracket that you end up in, it may be a lower bracket, but those levels will probably have risen as well. So it, it's, it's quite possible that you'll still be in a higher tax bracket, even if you're bringing in less money. And, 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 and if you're in tax-free, let's call them quote, tax-free investments like um, municipal bonds, for example, while those may be tax-free, it does add to your provisional income. So, you know, you're going to end up paying more than tax, more than you would, you know, with those investment vehicles in your portfolio than you thought you would. Now, let me go back again to the relation to term life and something like a universal life. As I mentioned, my head has now kind of flipped to really viewing something like a universal life really more of as an, an investment than the actual insurance for death kind of for example like you're mentioning the accumulation so you only have available as you're accumulating whereas when you buy a term policy well there's that death benefit so regardless of god forbid if you die and, and you, that is the money that's available do you view those two products being complementary in some way, or in other words, you buy a term life, let's say for a certain amount of time while you're accumulating the universal life. And then maybe if it hits a certain threshold, you let the other expire, or do you feel like universal covers both an investment vehicle as well as what you would presumably need as a death benefit? So term life doesn't have any cash value tied to it. So, you know, you either, it either pays out or it doesn't. And in truth, about 2% of all term policies pay out. They're, uh, it's, it's hugely profitable for, for insurance companies. Um, do I recommend it? I do for a young family. Um, let's, you know, you're 24, you're starting a family. It doesn't cost anything to have a term policy when you're 24 and healthy. Um, at the, the one caveat, well, the one advantage that a term policy would have as it relates to a universal life policy is that your health profile, um, when you qualified for your term policy, assuming it's convertible, will grandfather you in to a, a universal policy, and your premiums will be less. It'll be it'll be less money for you to um, uh, to buy that policy because as you get older, you get health problems, right? It becomes insurance becomes more expensive. If you can grandfather yourself into your profile when you were twenty four years old, you know. It, it 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 makes sense. It can it can mean a real difference in um you know in the cost of your uh, permanent life insurance policy. Does that same idea of how healthy you are? I assume in some way, but 
going back to even the underwritten part, when you get a policy open, you have to go through some sort of evaluation to show how healthy you are. Now, with the universal policy, it's the cash that you're putting in that accumulates and accumulates. How does that coincide with somebody that's healthy and gets a better rate? Does that also mean some sort of a better investment rate as the policy continues versus somebody that's not as healthy and maybe they're having to pay a little bit more? Is there any relationship, I guess is what I'm asking, between how healthy you are when you take out the policy, uh, what you're paying in for the premium? And then again, does that affect on the back end how your returns may function? Your returns will be better if you're healthier because you'll have more money to to you know invest in that policy, right? As, as, so the cost will be less. So in, in a way, uh, yes. And look, we when we're when we're drawing up a plan for um, a client, we're assuming a six percent return year over year. In truth, these are performing at about seven to eight percent. Um, but you know, you're managing volatility, you're taking the risk of, um, sequence of returns out of the equation. Um, you're taking income tax risk out of the equation. Uh, it's, it's a great investment to let grow and to finance those things that you'll most certainly need, um, later in life. Right. Um, when, when you think about it, um, we all have, um, you know, auto insurance and home insurance. Um, the odds of, of you having a fire in your house is about one in 1200. Um, the odds of you getting into a car accident is one in 240. But we, we all have insurance. We all have coverage for that required to, right? Your odds of needing long-term care are 50%. Um, one of these things that you can do is withdraw tax-free for your long-term care if and when you need it, as opposed to getting a long-term policy where you're putting all these premiums in. And if you don't need long-term care, you know, you've just paid all these premiums and something that's going to be worthless. Yeah. Gosh, that's <laughs> a whole different area too, as far as the long-term care coverage is concerned, but the cost. So important. Yeah. So important. Uh, yeah. So uh, do you want to speak about it for people that are uninitiated into that world? Cause I, the, amount that I know about the long term is basically there's supposed to be a period where let's say you don't really need the same amount of death benefit because your kids are adult age and so on and pretty much everything else is going to be covered and there's a window in there where you would presumably transition to uh, having long-term care coverage. I want to say last I even heard there's a window of like do it at 59 and a half or right before it really bumps up at 60, something like that. But what I'm hearing you say is for universal, you may not even have to uh, engage in that particular type of insurance. What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're not in a user to lose it scenario. Um, you can take withdrawals on it. I mean, think about it. Nursing homes on average cost about $90,000 a year right now. Um, in 20 years, that number will be up to $120,000. So you know, inflation will make that more expensive. And as I said, one in two people will need long-term care at some point in their lives. People are living longer than they ever did. And, you know, it's a consideration that not a lot of people think of that, um, 
you know, that's very real and they'd rather bury their head in the sand on it. Yeah, which is, is not not really going to be the way to go <laughs> for I feel like anything financial uh, is probably not going to be your, your best strategy and, and insurance goes hand in hand with that. Um, well, I think that's most of the questions, Eric, that I have for you. Again, just like with the health insurance conversation, is there anything really pertinent that we missed in the universal life area there's there's one thing that that you should keep in mind um there is it is that the top 25 percent of income income earners in this country pay 86 percent of all of the taxes and you're considered top 25 if you make over eighty four thousand dollars a year those are people that have tax problems right the rest of People who are households that are making under 84000 um, uh, have a cash flow problem. And those are the people who the Dave Ramseys and the Susie Ormans are talking to. Um, but for those who have a tax problem, um, the strategy should be to bring your rate at or as close to zero as possible. And you can accomplish this with with strategic investments like a universal life policy, with taking tax-deferred um, investments, paying the taxes now, and then, you know, avoiding a, a, a really expensive uh, future because nobody knows what the tax rates are going to be in the future, right? It's just you're going into retirement, whatever the government wants to charge you at that time, and it causes a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. And of course, uh, what the government will do next <laughs> is uh, multiple, multiple hours worth of conversation, right? Which Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> for sure. I mean, it's scary. Think about it. Think about you going into retirement in five years and the market has a major correction. You're, th- this this kitty of money that you thought you have is, is now only worth you know, a, a, a certain percentage of what it was. And you know, that makes for uh, a lot of stress. So we didn't talk about annuities at all, but the key to a happy retirement, a stress-free retirement is guaranteed lifetime income and a financial vehicle that you can borrow from, uh, use for long-term care to supplement that, uh, that'll just put your finances in the place where they need to be so you don't have to worry about outliving your money uh, and you know bear markets that may come in the future and things like that. Yeah, and you're right. Annuities is a completely separate avenue, similar, but of course, its own path and its own consideration. So maybe we'll get that one in for next time. <laughs> so, but, but Eric, before I let you go, do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact information where they can find you on social media? And if you have any events or promotions you want to let people know about? Sure. So um, I am on LinkedIn and Facebook, uh, Pure Assurance um, on Facebook. And you can, my name Eric Geyer, G-E-I-E-R on LinkedIn. Um, you Also, I, I'm going to be doing a, a webinar uh, starting next week on escaping the retirement tax trap. Uh, and if you're interested in getting an invite to that webinar, it'll be very, very informative. Um, you can do so at, at www.pureassurance.com and that's P-U-R-E-S-U-R-A-N-C-E.com and just shoot me a quick email and, and just say webinar and, uh, and I'll make sure that you get an invite to the webinar uh, and um, I'll, I'll be offering a free uh, 22-page analysis of what your current strategy is and what your likelihood of retirement success is uh, compared to 
a few tweaks that that will recommend uh, that will for sure increase your probability of success. So totally free, great webinar, and uh, just reach out to me if um, if you'd like an invite to that. Perfect. And as you mentioned at the top of the show, I will put the information into the show notes as well to make it easy for folks to find you. Again, Eric, I appreciate you taking the time to join me today and we'll be in touch. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at SuburbanFolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle SuburbanFolk. Thank you for listening to my daddy.